Come on around back Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. And if you're following along in your Rosie on the House homeowner handbook, you know that today, second Saturday of the month, it's the ultimate gardening hour. We're not just talking food. We're not just talking local food. We're talking hyper-local food. Justin Ron of Agriscaping is joining us. And when I hear the word hyper, I'm thinking like fast, like supersonic. Uh, and I, I know you're not talking fast food here in the Ultimate no, Garden No, not hour. that kind of fast food, but in terms of uh, maybe maybe fast to your door from its location, that, that probably fits the bill. Uh, and that's a big piece of, of what we'll talk about today is kind of diving into how you, the home gardener, actually plays a role in the hyper-local food movement. You know, it's not just about big farms getting closer to you. It's it's about you, the the back backyard gardener, and how you can actually integrate your own work, the own things you're doing, the things you grow great. How that could be integrated in the local food movement, also, and and why that's needed. I mean, there's actually some major movements happening in the industry of agriculture that are forcing the hand of localization even more, and uh, it's uh, it's a hot topic. Uh, I mean, back in 2014. Really, the origins, a lot of the concern around our, our food system in the United States, I would say, started kind of a kickoff in, in 2000 with, uh, with everything shutting down after 9-11. You know, there was two weeks of just silence on the, on the transportation networks, and, and because of that, there was no food. I mean, here in the Phoenix market, we had a four-day food supply at the time in, in our local grocery stores and systems. And so outside of those four days, all of a sudden you, you saw everything start disappearing. So there was a movement, especially with uh, University of Arizona, ASU even, they started a new, newer programs with the urban farming systems and s- sustainability really started up around that time, started kicking off. And a lot of those things were because of the challenges experienced after 9-11. And, you know, fast forward to 2014, there was a major shift just globally in how people lived. It was the first time in humanity's history that more people lived in or around cities. So within a a 30 mile radius of a city, a major city, um, rather than in or around uh, rural environments. You know, so the the city population globally, and especially here in the United States, you know, people were gravitating more towards the cities, which means farms were being pushed further out. And many of you probably live in a subdivision here in Arizona, and th- that subdivision once upon a time was likely farmland. And that's, that being the case, that's kind of where a lot of the pressures are happening to to cause some shifts, to cause some changes. And as the building and the communities and the subdivisions continue to grow, because they're not going to stop, but we're not creating more farmland, you know, that this thousand acres is now a subdivision. Well, they're not going and creating another thousand acres somewhere else to start a new farm. No, they're trying. I'll say they're trying. And and how they try uh, is they'll take a, a lot of that surface soil because they have to get it to engineering grade for the houses that go into it. And they'll take that surface soil and they'll scrape it up, put it in big piles, and they'll try to sell it off to to other farmers that are trying to terraform some new land a little further out in Coolidge or trying to support some of that. But that process is not why people moved to Arizona originally. I mean, the pioneers moved to where they were because there was water, there was good soil, 
And and that was main reasons. It was the agricultural value of the sustainability of the system. But then as the farms get pushed further out, that original great water access and soil access was was covered, which then forces food further away. And uh, when original studies were done at ASU about the distance food travels here in the state of Arizona, they found that fresh food, so catch this, fresh food on average was traveling at the time, about 2014, was 1,250 miles to Arizona grocery stores. That was the average. And and I don't know about you. How, uh, do you feel fresh, Romy, after, <laughs> after, after a thousand mile a road thousand trip? mile road trip? And that's the other thing. It's not flying in a plane. This is a road trip that can take days, weeks, sometimes even months just to get to us. And and we're calling that fresh. Um, and that's why when people visit areas that have a better local food system and they go to a restaurant and they taste the food there, they're like, this stuff's good. I can taste the tomato. It's not just a texture and a color. And that's another piece of the puzzle. Uh, the health, the actual nutrient value of food that travels further isn't as high because it's not ripening on the vine. And when it's out of season, that's another issue. You know, when it's shipping from someplace where it's in season there but not in season here, the nutrient value is also diminished, and that's uh, another challenge, and it, it relates to a lot of our own health. So there's a lot of connecting points to the life of a human being and its food source. You know? So how do I get started? Well, getting started is as easy as acknowledging you eat food <laughs> and acknowledging that, that your food you know, relates to your health, it relates to the local economy, and the closer you can get to your food source – the, the more healthy you are, the more healthy your economy is that it's around you and surrounds you and probably pays your bills. And uh, so number one is, uh, you know, you want to join the, the hyper-local food movement? Do you, do you eat food? If you eat food, you're part of the movement. Now, question is, how deep you want to go? So in your, in your own spaces, um, first way, if I'm not growing food at home, which some of you might not be but are aspiring to do such, I would recommend you look for local Grocery stores or farmers markets that are really focusing on local production. And local production, let's just speak about that. I guess what's considered local, according to the USDA, is food that travels under 400 miles. I could be in any, I, from where we're sitting right here, 400 miles in any direction. I'm either in another state or another country. <laughs> Correct. And, and that's one of the caveats that people have then utilized. You go to the grocery store today and you'll see a little local and, you know, look it up. Where, where local is that? You know, it could show up in Mexico. And, and a lot of times if it, they just look at the border of Mexico is the 400-mile mark kind of thing. And so even if it came from way down south in Mexico, it's still going to be considered local because when it transferred in, that's when it was registered as its location. <laughs> and so that's a little tricky. And so unless you live in, you know, Delaware, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to, to get a lot of local stuff that, you know, well, I mean, in, in Delaware, I guess you've got everything's outside your state. You've got five different states that you could be pulling from and still be considered local. So – that's, that's local according to the USDA. Hyper-local is, as we term it, it's going to be within 15 miles of where you live. And that is your farmer's market type farmers. And so I think getting to know some of your local farmers is, is one of the keys, in my mind, to understanding where your best food's at. Your best food sources are going to be, number one, the sources that are right here in Phoenix uh, metropolitan area and, and looking to the farmer's markets that only cater to that hyper-local farming system. 
And that's, I think, a, a big important piece of that puzzle. So first, contribute to buying hyper-local. Contribute to the actual farms that are here and around here, which starts the farmer's market. And then you start looking for restaurants that are also doing the same. And there's not a whole lot of them, but it's a growing number. I know we're, we're installing another restaurant in ASU or putting a garden in there. So they have a little bit more hyper-local. We're also connecting them to what's called the Utopian Harvest System. That's something you might want to look up. That's how you, the backyard grower, might be able to get integrated into the local food economy is through Utopian Harvest Systems, um, which is a certified way to grow in your backyard and then integrate into the local food economy according and accommodate the food safety laws. So that's one of the things like me growing up. I grew up with uh, zucchini out the wazoo, as we'd <laughs> say. You know, We'd have so much zucchini certain times of the year, we couldn't give it away. And yet we knew there were probably people just a little bit across town, a couple miles away, that would have paid good money for that really fresh zucchini that we were growing in our backyard. And so that gives you a little bit of an overview, I guess, of what is local and then what really is considered hyper-local and maybe a couple different levels that you can start contributing to that movement. And if you're going the zucchini route, because it grows very, very well in Arizona, yeah, and it doesn't take a lot of stocks to get a huge amount of produce you also need to get uh meet your local dairyman because yes. the best way to get rid of zucchinis with a half a stick of butter <laughs> uh, a cup of sugar there you go <laughs> three cups of flour <laughs> yeah and there's so many things you can do with zucchini i mean there's zucchini bread zucchini cookies i've even seen zucchini cinnamon rolls you know so it's a it's a good base a lot of cool stuff you can do with it and then there's obviously all the savory stuff that you can do with zucchini and now's a good time. So if, if, uh, if you're listening live, now's a great time to get started on your zucchini. Plant those seeds. And I don't know what your last two recipes were off the top of my head, but Jennifer had said yesterday, I did both of the last recipes and was very pleasant. Yeah, surprised. I really love your newsletter. It's just so quick and simple. So I grabbed the radish salsa. Uh-huh. And you know what? It got better over time. I, I agree with you. Was, As that starts soaking in, you need to get more of that balanced flavor. Uh, that, that It was amazing. It tastes, it tastes great. I like to keep it chilled. We'll chill it for about two days, and then, then we really start diving oh, into it. Okay, we have to put that tip on the newsletter. Yeah, tip and on then, the newsletter. Two-day two day cure. And then the fridge. broccoli tots were a huge hit at our Sunday family dinner. The broccoli tots? Yeah, you just you take uh, broccoli and steam it up, and then you mix it with uh, mash it up, mix it with Parmesan, breadcrumbs, egg, bake it in little muffin cups. Truly amazing. Yeah, those are those are fun. The smaller the tot, the smaller the muffin cup, the 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 more the tot. That's true, right? and they kind of they can even be like a little appetizer. But there was no yes. recipe this week, Justin. Uh oh, I'm gonna have yeah. to talk to Julie. What happened? <laughs> Did we know. double up last week? Maybe maybe. No, I, I, I think y'all were just really had other things, you know, on there. But I am watching. That is true. I'll try the next one. And that's okay. the that's the Tasty Tuesday yeah. newsletter. Tasty y'all send out. Tuesday newsletter. We got a recipe on that one almost every week. So 99.9 percent well, of the time. Well, maybe it was one. me. I'll check again. <laughs> She'll no, probably say it was the auto schedule. I scheduled it. You know, the system must not have. <laughs> no, I do know that I did. We we have we have a lot of things going on in the valley right now. This is kind yes. of kick off to a lot of stuff, uh, and so I know there were a lot of a lot of more local and and uh, timely messages that I know we were sending out because Queen Creek Botanical Gardens opening back up. We've got the Art of Pruning class today. You know, so there's a lot of cool things that are that are in play right now. And you can join the conversation today today at one triple eight seven six seven. Four three four eight. That's one triple eight. Rosie for you, or you can send text questions to four one one nine two three.
In the Ultimate Garden Hour with Justin Rahner, we're talking about hyper-local food and how to get involved in not only growing your own uh, local food, but uh, you know sourcing it local as well as you're out gathering for your family. And you know, big weekend this weekend, a lot of, uh, I can't remember the number, I should look it up, but the, the millions and billions of chickens that uh, will be consumed, chicken bones oh, this yes. weekend. Just this <laughs> Super weekend. Super Bowl weekend is, is something like in the... It, it's it's ridiculous. I'll I'll look it up during bottom of the hour news because the numbers are staggering. Yeah, and if you didn't already get your stock for that like a week ago, you're gonna have a, a rough time today. So get out early to get your <laughs> get your stuff for Super Bowl weekend. So in in that mode right there, it's like talking about hyper local food. What I highly recommend is looking at at supporting your local farms, the really hyper local farms. And there's there are about two dozen of them here in the Phoenix metro area. And uh, just to name a few of them, some of my favorites out if you're in the Southeast Valley, we got Schneff Farms. Uh, they continually have a little U-Pick garden out there. One of my old employees at the Queen Creek Botanical Garden, he actually helps manage that over there. You got King and Queen Farm also out in Queen Creek off of Germain. Got Maya's Farm, which is more like South, I guess, Ahwatukee area. There's a really great farm she's got there. Um, there's... Uh, Agritopia Farm in Gilbert. They've got a little farm still there in the very center of Agritopia. And you can, you know, obviously go and support some of Joe's Farm Grill, the the farmhouse, some of these other restaurants that are, are catering to that local stuff. You got Steadfast Farms, and they, they do a lot of selling through the, the, the local um, markets and stuff. We've got a number of different markets. I was going to share with you some of those markets, too. You're you're, this is a good day. Today being Saturday, it's actually the biggest day for all your farmers' markets. There's one opening up, likely near you, somewhere in the state. And uh, those ones do cater to your your closest people. And um, so there's an Ahwatukee Farmers' Market. You got uh, the downtown Chandler Farmers' Market open this morning, downtown Ocotillo Far- uh, Farmers' Market. You got uh, Farmers' Market on High Street. That's actually open on Sundays. You got the uh, Old Town Scottsdale Farmers Market open on Saturdays. Roadrunner Park Farmers Market also open Saturdays. And those guys have, they got a lot of great farmers over there. Sun City Farmers Market actually is open on Thursdays. Verado Farmers Market and um, even the Gilbert Farmers Market, which is one of my favorites, uh, right down there downtown Gilbert. I love the ambiance. And they got, I think, almost a thousand vendors there. And there are a lot of great farmers there. That do uh, great work, bring a lot of really hyper-local food right to the market where you can get it super fresh. I mean, usually picked within days, not weeks or months. And I know Arrowhead has one. Arrowhead um, has one, yep. There's, I can't remember, it's Bethany? I think it's Bethany in Central. One of these mega churches that are on Central, they've got a huge farmer's market um, on Saturdays as well. I, I always see it, you know, sometimes as, as I'm pulling out. But one of the things, you know, you started off and a lot of those were in the Southeast Valley. And a big reason for that is, you know, that's where our water system is coming off of the Salt River, you know, the Verde River, the confluence come in there and the water supply. And that's a lot of SRP irrigated properties. And, yep. you know, that that was a, a big farming area that was developed. But because of the way the water system is there, it was easy for locals to continue to continue have to their farm. own, you know, on – whether it's, you know, acre and a quarter properties or half acre properties or 
you know, even even in the smaller subdivisions, uh, you know, it was just so much part of how that, you know, the the housing growing into the agriculture community there. Yep, and it, and they still got a good a good number of ag grade wells that are still active out there too, which makes it a lot easier. And so they're just pulling from groundwater. And the aquifers out there are actually very well stocked. I mean, when we started, especially today, <laughs> well, especially today, you'd, you'd hope so, right? But those aquifers, I mean, just give you an idea just in the last few years and what the difference in transitioning from farming life to urban life kind of has, has done to our water system. A lot of people think, oh, we're using up too much water. There's not enough water for everybody. It, it's not actually accurate. But the challenge that we have is actually growing food for the people because the farms used 40 times more water than the houses do. And uh, good evidence of that is a well we actually have out at the Queen Creek Botanical Garden. When we first tested that thing, I think back in 2016, the depth was around 800 feet where the water level was. And so our pump that we had to get to make sure we pull that water up was a pretty hefty pump. Now, fast forward a couple years later, 2018, as we were filling the lake, it was actually at about 400 and something feet. And uh, we're like, wow, well, it's, you know, only half the distance. Maybe we don't need as such, uh, you know, we don't need these same turbines. And then go go another two years later, we're in 2020, and we uh, we tested it again. It was 247 feet. And so we were one-fourth the depth that we were at the beginning, and that had a lot to do with the fact that the local the local area had been converted over so much to, to uh, suburbia and less farms. I mean, it's all pretty much sold out around there. There's no more real farms in that, in that quadrant over there, Ellsworth and Riggs area. It's all turning into residential communities. And so they, it was able to recharge and hold its charge. And so it's, it's well-stocked. We were able to downgrade the, the size of our wellheads and uh, reduce the expense to even pull the water out. So those kind of things. I mean, it's, this is, it's, it's real. But again, the more people we get that are close, that means the food often comes from further away, and it's not the best. Any of these farms, you know, produce chicken? Produce chicken? I think you gotta, you gotta go Hickman Farm. That'd probably be the closest bet, and that's which not is usually super egg. Local. They don't do yeah. meat because uh, 500 million chickens Woo. is what will be consumed on Sunday. That's 162 million pounds. Another beautiful Arizona Saturday morning. We don't get to say this very often, but a wet Saturday morning. A wet Saturday morning. Definitely wet. Your garden is calling for you, waiting for those seeds to be planted. I mean, the soil is moist. It's ready to grow some hyper-local food for yourself right in your own backyard or front yard, actually, because, you know, that's what we do. We like to integrate it into wherever food, wherever plants are already growing. That's the place to grow your food. Now, I... I've wanted to get out there, but it's it's a long way. But you know, when we get this type of rain, just to see what the Queen Creek is doing, especially as it's going through Boyce Thompson, I bet that was a pretty river viewing experience. You don't get very often in Arizona. That's right. It's a it's a beautiful little river out there. Uh, you can drive over it in a couple different locations, um, and those a lot of the washes are definitely filling up right now. On my drive in, you know, there was a lot a lot of the washes were 
We're moving a little bit and moving slow, which is nice. When they're moving fast, that's when we don't like it so much. Because <laughs> then the roads become dirt, you know, dirt pathways, uh, you know, and it's not, not the funnest. So what do you do with all of this water? You just go to your irrigation valve and just shut it off for a couple of days? A lot of times, and that's another reason why we have, nowadays we're installing more of the smart watering systems that, you know, ping off of the local weather stations and they'll shut it off. So you don't, you're not that guy who's got uh, your irrigation on in a rainstorm and help conserve some of that water. Don't no no sense in watering overdoing your watering on a day like today. It's good stuff. And and if you are wanting to grow some stuff in your own backyard right now, there's a whole list of stuff. I mean, we are now, well, I, I'd say officially maybe the 14th is probably going to ring true again that that's kind of our last frost day. Uh, I mean, even yesterday morning, I was out at the Queen Creek Botanical Garden in what we call a D microclimate. There's kind of a purple zone Another way we look at it, and uh, there was ice. There was ice, and I was my hands were freezing trying to break <laughs> some of the ice off of some of the plants and stuff, just see how they're doing. Um, a but, few years ago for Christmas, Mom gave me leather gloves that were like fur insulated, mm. and this this year I've I've got to use them like three times. Three they've, times they've been, they've been they've been sitting in the closet for. A handful of years, but I, I actually got to use them this year. It, it is a funny thing to go out there and you're like, there's ice in the water trough. Yeah. <laughs> like, where, gotta where break am it up I? a little bit. Yeah, where am I? And that's that's the indicative of living in a desert. We got pre- pretty big swings in temperature, even from the hot part of the day to the cold part. You know, we could have up to 40 degrees in, in a shift in a single day. And that's what makes it a little bit challenging to live here, but also one of the great blessings of living here because obviously this time of year, you know, everyone would rather be here usually than someplace else. And we're in close proximity to all the powder snow, like we were talking about off break, as well as the beach isn't that far away either if you want to get go through Mexico to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if you'd want to do a California beach. You've seen all the water that's flowing into the Pacific right now from the the pounding they've getting. Yeah. They've getting. It's, uh, it's always a feast or a famine over there, it seems, <laughs> for for water. They're in the... It's unfortunate that so much of that they have to channel out into the ocean. And then, you know, I'll guarantee you probably around uh, July or August of this year, we're going to hear them complaining about not enough water. Not again. enough water. <laughs> it's like, well, learn how to store it better or channel it better or something. It's not like this is a new new situation. Well, that would solve the problem. We They, they can't be doing that. Oh, no. You know, they'd have less to, to shift, you know, political <laughs> leanings on. You know, I don't know. It's We don't get into that, but we do get into the garden and grow our own stuff because that's our, that's our best bet. You know, whatever's going on in California, they can keep it and we can grow our own cool stuff here and we can enjoy this wonderful weather and the 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 brilliance i think that a lot of the founders of arizona really put into their water systems to to supply us with a consistent supply that won't overwhelm us and doesn't underwhelm us either i think it's uh, it's it's great so i'm i i appreciate the generations before us that planned ahead and the native americans that really showed us the way because that's where a lot of our systems came from. We learned it from the Native American systems and canals that were already present all the way down through, you know, Coolidge and, and Casa Grande. I mean, a lot of that, it, it was here, and we learned from it, and, and everyone benefited from that fact. Now, 
past the 14th on the frost date. Is that where you're saying start planting after the 14th? Wait for that last frost date before you put your seeds in? Not necessarily that. Putting the seeds in now is still a good idea. But if you're going to be doing transplants, that's now it's like I've got tomatoes that I've been that we started a month or month or month and a half ago, and so we're going to be planting those out after the 14th. We're going to be transplanting the more tender stuff. You know, we got zucchini starts, we got squash starts, you know, a lot of stuff that we've been growing indoors that we're going to now transition out. But if you're doing seeds, there's still a whole bunch of stuff. And if you haven't got it already, highly recommend going to agriscaping.com. Join our newsletter because especially here in Arizona, you'll actually get the edible garden calendar for this area specific. And it is ripe of full of a lot of great information as well as exactly what to be planting right now. Talk me through what, what some of those are. If, if I'm going to start growing my own and be a hyper-local food producer and contributor, what you know, seasonally am I looking at? So what you're looking at right now, I mean, we got a good list, about 15 things that you can plant right now. If I'm doing transplants, I still could do my artichoke and Jerusalem artichoke type transplants right now. Got asparagus via seed, basil via seed right now, really good idea. You can get a jump on your beans by starting to plant some black-eyed peas. You also got garbanzo beans, lentils, beets you can still be planting right now. This is really the last month that you can be planting beets and still get a good harvest from them. Um, Rob broccoli, so if you're doing not head broccoli, so if you're seed planting a Rob broccoli, which is a little bit different type, it's got little florets all over it, those you can be doing right now. And uh, we've got uh, cilantro, you can still be seeding those in. This would be kind of your last round of cilantro, but I'd recommend putting it in a green or a microclimate, morning sun, afternoon shade. And all this information is actually on our charts. I'm actually just going through my chart right now. So this is the <laughs> same kind of information you can have for yourself. Um, every month you got this information. Garlic, you can still be seeding in some of your garlic actually right now. These would be ones I'd also still put in a in an A or a, a green microclimate, morning sun, afternoon shade. You can still do some kales right now. Even uh, your regular curly leaf. I like the red Russian is one of the best ones to be planting right now via seed. Lettuces, you can still do a little bit of lettuces, but I'd, I'd focus more on leaf head lettuce, which would be like a, a red oak leaf or a green oak leaf type lettuce. Ones that you can trim as they grow up about four inches. We'd call it cash cropping your, your lettuce, so you're planting really close together. I mean, like literally almost every inch, and so they're just growing up almost as a, as a micro green or up to about four inches, and then you cut the top two inches off, and you can kind of shave it off with a knife, grab a handful of it, and there's your... Your, uh, your personal size salad, you already got it right there. You got the mix already mixed up. We'll mix the seeds first of that spring mix, and then we'll just spread it on the ground, kind of how a lot of people do their carrots, cover it with just a little bit of soil, and, and putting that again in a good A microclimate will do well for you. Now, once you start planting, not only do you appreciate it, but so does the rest of the environment. Insects, rabbits, dogs, <laughs> chickens, cats, you know. Your garden personally, do you have, is it big enough that you don't really worry about that? Or do you have to have it covered and fenced and, uh, you know, barricaded? Well, I'd say a well-designed garden is going to accommodate all factors, right? So we're going to take everything into consideration. What wildlife you got, what neighbor's cats you got, what feral cats you got, all those kind of things. What dog size you have, you know, that makes a difference. And what type of dog you got. I mean, I had to rehome one of my dogs early on because he was a digger and I didn't want him digging in certain parts of my yard. But we learned from those things. So I'd say that 
I do have some areas that I'm more concerned about than others. And those areas that I'm more concerned, usually I lift them off the ground about 18 inches minimum to keep them away from most of the ground critters that are going to be attacking the plants that I'm growing in those beds. So raised beds can be very effective. Now, other ways you can do that is deter them using things like in the alum family. So growing onions on the perimeter, growing other things that they might enjoy more, even growing clover around the perimeter so the rabbits are eating the clover they're deterred by the smell of the the alum family stuff the onions and things maybe even having rosemary hedges around my other section where i've got the more tender plants i don't want eaten and that'll help deter the smell get them full before they even find your food that you're trying to grow more intentionally so when i have flat land that's the approach we take we try to we try to use natural hedging to be able to keep things out of it uh, and then another thing you can do is actually sprinkle cayenne pepper uh, all through the garden area where you might be having cats leaving something other than Lincoln Logs in your <laughs> garden. And that will keep them from doing their business in there as it also keeps the uh, the rabbits and a lot of the gophers actually away. And castor oil is another magic remedy that you can spray that on the soil and keep the gophers from digging and pocket gophers digging underneath your soil. They don't like digging in castor oil infested soil for some reason. Huh. I hadn't. I had not heard the castor oil before. <laughs> it's a good trick. Uh, there's a product out there called um, uh, Critter Max by E Z Flow. Just the letter Z, or letter E, letter Z Flow, and they have that product that is already pre-mixed to to get rid of those critters digging in your garden. Excellent. Now we've got a text question at four one one nine two three from somebody who wants to know when is a good time to prune oranges, and you had mentioned later. Today, there's a pruning class, and I'm pretty sure now's not the time to prune your citrus. I'm not usually pruning citrus right now, although you can for aesthetics, but now's a good time to be looking for your – if you got a sprout coming up from the base, the roots, the rootstock or the sprouts, now's a pretty good time that you can clip those babies out. I mean, almost any time's a good time to clip those out, anything below the original graft point, and those, those branches are going to grow 10 times faster, and they will take over the tree – they usually have a lot more thorns as well. Exactly. And they shoot straight up through the top. I yep. mean, it, it, it's pretty obvious when you get one. Yep. And uh, unfortunately, many people think themselves an amazing gardener when they see their citrus tree is all of a sudden growing much faster this year than last. And they didn't bother to look at the base and realize that they were cultivating a rootstock that wasn't going to provide anything of real value to them. So that's now's the, a good time to get rid of those ones. And the rare chance you would get a fruit off of those. I've never seen one on any of mine. But it's not going to be anything you're going to want to eat. Not super tasty. I mean, a lot of them are sour oranges. Uh, others are trifoliates. Uh, uh, some of them, I mean, the, in the trifoliate class, they sometimes can get this brainy-looking little fruit, but it doesn't have anything but rind. So it's, it depends on what you got as a rootstock. Um, old days, I mean, I have a rootstock-based lemon tree now. So back in the day, 30 years ago, when this tree was planted on my property, it, it probably had a different variety of lemon, but now it's the rootstock that took over. But that rootstock, thankfully, was actually a, an heirloom, ancient variety of uh, Italian rough lemon, which is actually a good lemon. And it's a, it's a great, well-balanced lemon, and so that's a good one for us. But for the answer on citrus, don't prune the, ma the major portion of it. Just look for those sprouts shooting out and make sure that those are trimmed out. Anything below the root, anything below the graft point needs to be cut out for sure. And if you're going into, you know, if, if you have citrus for harvest that you're, you know, not ornamental, but something you're trying to cultivate and get a lot of produce for, I've already seen a few little buds on a few of mine start. So if you trim now, you're going to be 
cutting off, off a lot that. of your yeah. harvest. <laughs> yeah, we don't mess with that until we, we want to wait till the summer or the fall to be doing most of our major trimming, mainly for that reason on production. Another key factor on your citrus, just word to the wise, if you still got citrus on your tree right now, you might want to be pulling that off. And part of the reason for that is is when you pull it off, the, the tree then starts putting more of its nutrient value not into the fruit, now into next year's fruit. And if you still have a bunch of fruit on your tree right now in your citrus world, then you're going to be reducing the amount of harvest you get for next year. And so we did a citrus picking in a – we have a big community citrus picking down in Queen Creek. We did that, I think it was last week. Hundreds of people showed up to help pick a lot of the citrus off of people's trees just in the neighborhoods and some of the, the little farm areas and stuff exactly for that reason. Got to get the old fruit off, get that donated to the local food banks so that the new fruit will be able to come on and we'll have a good crop next year. That was my question is what do you do with it because we have two lemon trees and we probably use four or five a day and you can't tell we've picked any off those trees. <laughs> Well, a cool thing about things like lemons, those have a little more stability on the tree. And so those ones I may not pull off so quick, uh, as well as the Arizona sweet variety. Now, the reason I say that is because the Arizona sweet often then blooms a little later anyway. So it would also be a good idea. We do have another calendar. It's all about the year-round fruit calendar and when things are actually blossoming. So we have a lot of those citrus really uh, charted out. So you know which ones. You really want to catch them the month before they start blooming is the time to be pulling all the excess fruit off. You know, if I was inspired to start gardening today, I don't know that you could pick a better day for digging. This is a great day for digging. It's also a great day to actually find out where your yard is already perfectly set up to grow vegetables for you. And the way you find out is you start looking where the seeds of weeds are growing. So a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to just get rid of their weeds, but the reality of a weed is that it's growing and it's found the perfect condition to exist. That perfect condition to exist is also the perfect condition to likely grow some vegetables or some things for yourself and your family. So replace those weeds with some good intentionally grown crops. And there's pockets in your yard right now, I guarantee it's already got some uh, dandelions growing in it. And as you look for those dandelions starting to sprout up, now's a good time to be considering turning those dandelions in. So you can literally just turn them over, chop them up, turn them in. And then go and plant some some wonderful vegetables, some of the ones that we've been mentioning today or what's on your chart from agriscaping.com. Those things will be great things to start seed planting and start growing up for yourself. Now, to prep that, what I'd recommend is after you churn it under, we, we, we like doing flame weeding. So we'll actually get a that flame That was thrower. my next question. So what do you do with the existing <laughs> weeds? Do you pull them? You know, obviously, you don't, if you're going to be planting something there, you don't want to hit it with a harsh chemical to kill it. No and have that residual left there. So you like the you, <clears throat> Rosie's method, the, the yes, flamethrower. the flamethrower. That's my favorite method, especially right now, because they're just tiny. There's not a lot of them. As long as they're under about two inches in diameter in terms of your plant, that flame weeder will do a good job. And then after you flame weed that, and, you burn the area, then kind of can turn it in and you know turn it under after that, and then add a little bit of good compost, and you've got the right recipe to grow an amazing garden. The other reason we do flame weeding is because there are – some seeds likely on the surface of other things that aren't likely your intention that you burn off and be able to kind of kill off. But 
I'd wait till a day after the rain to do the flame weeding because all you're going to do is create steam and it's not going to burn much of anything. <laughs> and the flame weeder, it, you know, it, it sounds a lot scarier than it really is. I mean, it's a, it's a hose with a handle and a little torch you hook up to a five-gallon propane tank, usually about a 20-foot-long hose, and you just walk around and put it right on top of the surface. Yeah. And, I mean, even... When when we got really overrun and it was like all hands on deck family. I mean even even the kids at like seven and eight were out there. Ah, let me take a turn. Yeah, and, and they were like, "This is so satisfying." <laughs> well, and it is. It's one of the things that my staff they're they're always they're fighting over who gets to do the flame weeding, especially on a cold morning. You know, and so it's 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 a warm up the feet while you're at it's it. It's an enjoyable experience, and if you love flames, and it's uh it's it's fun too. <laughs> Just got to be careful. I mean, we like doing it on a little bit of a damp condition. We like doing it a little bit in the morning so that everything else is damp. We don't not obviously taking it to a dry field. You know, use some common sense. And if you don't have some, borrow somebody that's got some uh, common and, like sense you said, or a flamethrower. Yeah, <laughs> common sense or both, I guess. Is probably... And you made a great point there. We're not really burning dead weeds at this point. No. These are live. Correct. That they, they don't ever really catch on fire. They just you know, uh, kind of, you're kind of melting them. Kind of melting them. That's a good, a good uh, analogy for it. They do just kind of shrivel down, turn bit, turn black. And then you, you know, you've kind of, you've nipped them and that's what you need to do. You just nip them when they're really small and they don't have much energy to really bounce back from that. And that's kind of the key. Another way we'll do is that we'll burn it like that. And then another way, if you're really concerned about other things growing back up, put a layer of cardboard down and then put a couple inches of compost on top of that, water that in, and then, in a month from now, you just give it about 30 days. Biggest planting season is really the month of March. And so during that time, you can start breaking through that cardboard layer and you can be planting stuff. And that's actually a, a good way to go as well, just to ensure that you don't have a bunch of new stuff growing up through your hopeful garden. So key stuff. Key stuff. And when you say March is our big planting season, you can get that planting calendar by signing up for your newsletter? Yep. Sign up for the newsletter and you'll get an automatic access to... Um, the, the agriscaping online system. And in that, you'll be able to download a lot of different calendars, guides, and things that'll help you get your garden started right. And you mentioned earlier the Botanical Garden is opening back up? The Queen Creek Botanical Garden is officially open back up on Saturdays. Uh, we even have a little farm stand out there this morning, and the, the rain is tapering off. I mean, we'll be open at 9 o'clock from 9 to 5. Uh, the farmer's market section, that little farm stand in the front, that's all open to the public. And then for admission, you can come into the to the Botanical Garden side of things, explore around there. It's all part of the new... A greater Pecan Lake Entertainment venue, and there's a lot of great stuff. Caldwell Barbecue's right there. We got a Soda Rush. We we got ice cream. We got a lot of really amazing venue stuff out there as well that you can come and enjoy for your whole family. Everybody has something that they're going to enjoy doing. And obviously they can find Queen Creek Botanical Gardens online fairly easy, but it's on the corner of Riggs and Ellsworth, right next to the uh, Queen Creek Equestrian Center. And you call it the Pecan Lake Entertainment Venue? Yep, we got a we got a lake. It's called Pecan Lake, and we're right there next to it. <laughs>